I'm going to start this message with a question, and maybe it'll be the title. How do you esteem God's plan for your life? It might be hard to think about what I mean, because we don't use that word very often, esteem, except in terms of self-esteem, which I'll talk a little bit about. And it may also be hard for you to consider, because you may believe that God doesn't have a plan, that you just go through life, and He helps you every now and then, and it's your choices, and... I want to address both of those things. But how do you esteem God's plan for your life? Or I could use a different word if you don't like that one. How do you esteem God's purpose for your life? To esteem, Webster, his 1828 version says this. It means to set a value on, whether high or low, to esteem or to value. And then he gives an example from Deuteronomy 32 from Scripture. Then he forsook God who made him and lightly esteemed the riches of his salvation. To esteem can also mean to prize or to set a high value on or to reward with reverence, respect, or friendship. He says, when our minds are not biased, we always esteem the industrious the generous, the brave, the virtuous, and the learned. Esteem also means to hold in opinion, to repute, or to think. So given all of that, that's what I'm asking you. What do you think about God's purpose for your life? How much do you value God's purpose for your life? And if you feel like God doesn't have a purpose for your life, you especially need to listen to this message. Do you place God's purpose for your life in high value or low value? Do you uh, lightly esteem it or esteem it highly? I want to give you an example from Scripture, and then I'm going to maybe ask some questions. This, I don't want this message to be a pop psychology message. I want it to be real, tangible help for you, because that's what God has put in my heart. But one example in Scripture I want us to consider. You can read it from Genesis sometime. I'll just paraphrase it for the sake of time. Isaac married Rebekah. Isaac was the child of promise. Abraham told, God told Abraham that he would have descendants that were as the sands of the seashore, the stars in the heaven without number. And when Isaac and Rebekah conceive, they have twins. And God comes to her through his spirit and reveals to her that two nations are in her womb. He says the older will serve the younger and he tells her what's going to happen. They were born and Jacob got his name because he was a supplanter. He was a swindler. He was a uh, trickster. And even to the point that he came out and, and grabbed on the ankle of Esau, if you remember that part of the story. And Esau was a man who was, um, he was a manly man. He was a man of the field. He was, well, if Old Spice thought about it, they would make a commercial with Esau. If you have seen those Old Spice commercials, he, that, he fits. Listen to this from Hebrews, and you can read that story later if you want to. Hebrews 12. This is in context of what I asked you. How do you esteem God's plan for your life? We're going to see two contrary positions. 
Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Can't see God without holiness. Won't make it to heaven without holiness. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Let me address that first. Does that mean you're going to fail of the grace of God and lose your salvation? That's not what it's talking about. It is talking about despairing in the present condition that you're in. It is talking about lightly esteeming God's purpose and plan for your life in your current circumstances. He says, beware of that, lest any man fail, lest you stop esteeming God's grace highly enough to preserve you, sustain you, and make you happy. And he continues, lest there be any fornicator, that's a sexually immoral person, or a profane person, that's a godless person, just like a pagan. Lest there be a profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know that how afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected because he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Listen to how the Amplified reads that, verse 17. For you know that later on, when he wanted to regain title to his inheritance of the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no opportunity for repentance. There was no way to repair what he had done, no chance to recall the choice he had made, even though he sought for it with bitter tears. You understand what this is saying? I have to mention this. This is not my sermon, but I have to mention it. There's a whole contingent of people who believe that God chose Esau for damnation and hell before he was ever born, and that God chose Jacob for riches and prosperity and spiritual wealth before he was ever born. That is not what it's talking about. We're we're told here that Esau ahead of time, was the type of man he was so that afterward he couldn't even change because that's how he was. Let me read you. I guess I do have to go to Genesis and read just a couple of those verses so it'll make sense. The Lord said unto her, 25th chapter, 23rd verse, the Lord said unto Rebekah, Two nations are in thy womb. Two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. The one people shall be stronger, the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Now, this is talking about two um, parallel prophecies. The prophecy of the people of God and the, the Edomites who aren't the people of God, but also the types of men that these men would be. Now, in God preparing her ahead of time for what would happen, He didn't force Jacob to be a swindler. God does not bring sin into the world. God can't be tempted with evil, and He doesn't tempt any man, but every man's led away by his own lust and enticed. God decreed what would happen. Jacob probably knew about it, and he decided to make it happen through his own deceptive tendencies. His mom helped him. And yet, it doesn't seem like he is faulted. When did he pay for that? Well, you could say, well, Laban got him back. Yeah, What went around came around, and he had to work seven years for his wife, and then they gave him a different one. I'm glad we don't have that. Could you imagine, just as a side note, marrying somebody and not knowing that it's the wrong woman until the next day? I'm really glad our tradition and culture about marriage has changed enough that you know who you're marrying. Because that would be weird. (laughs) But that doesn't seem like it was a big deal either, as a side note. He finds out, he goes and tells Laban, hey, that wasn't very nice. He says, okay, 
give it a week, I'll give you the one you really wanted, and you can work for me seven more years. So he does. So maybe Jacob got his, if you want to think about it like that. But there's no evidence in Scripture of God thinking of Jacob or Israel as a profane man. Why? Because he highly esteemed God's plan for his life. And he went to whatever lengths he had to to try to make it happen. Now that is not what we should do. Esau lightly esteemed not only God's purpose for his life, but his identity as the firstborn in a um, patriarchal society where everything would be passed down to him. Do you know God could have fulfilled his prophecy to Rebekah and still allowed Isaac to bless Esau as the firstborn? Those could have coincided. See, most people when they think about this as a, a predestination discussion, they don't think about God could have done both. Who says? Who says the firstborn had to be the one that would get the blessing like that? Or the secondborn? So, you remember what happens. I'll flip back over there. I want to show you why. The Hebrew writer, and he doesn't write it like a revelation. He doesn't write it as a new truth. He writes it. He says, you, you know this. In other words, everybody knows Esau was a profane man. It was so well understood in the first century that people thought of Esau as the father of the Edomites who were always plaguing the people of God. <laughs> A little bit later in the 25th chapter, 28th verse, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob was boiling stew or pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. And therefore his name was called Edom. This moment in the history of Esau defined the rest of his life. So much so that people started calling him Edom after the bowl of soup that was more important to him than anything in the whole world at that time. Esau said, Behold, I'm at the point to die. And what profit shall this birthright do to me? Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore to him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and red lentil soup. And he ate and drank and rose up and went his way. Then Esau despised his birthright. Do you understand what's happening here? Esau, this means he despises birthright. It doesn't mean that he hated it. It means he thought lightly of it. There was a plan in place where Esau was in line to receive certain blessings and reward just based on who he was. And he thought so lightly of it that he cast it aside for all the rest of eternity for one meal. Now, do you think he was really starving and about to die? Come on, how long does it take before literally your body starts eating its own muscles? Uh, more than a couple weeks. The first couple weeks you eat your fat stores, you eat your carbohydrate stores the first couple days, right? He wasn't going to die. He was so caught up in the moment. This is why he's called a godless man. He didn't care about these things. So, there's two examples 
Jacob, although presumably that was sinful, we think it was. Sometimes I wonder what God thinks. We get these ideas about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And God doesn't say much about some things. For example, and again, I'm not going to preach about this either. The 12 tribes came from four women. God didn't say anything about it. Oh, that really bothers us. (laughs) Just an example. What is the point? God had a plan and a purpose for Israel. He was Jacob. He later became Israel. I I want to tell that part of the story too. He so desired blessing that he was on the way back. He put in his 14 years. He's on the way back with all his riches and possessions. And he meets the angel of the Lord. He's already been blessed. He's already wealthy and prosperous. And he tells the angel of the Lord, I will not let you go until you bless me. He didn't lightly esteem the blessing of God. He already reaped the benefit of the blessing that God gave him and he wanted more. That's how we're supposed to be. He wrestled with the angel. He ended up with a limp in his flesh, apparently from that day forward, but he was blessed because of his persistence. So do you lightly esteem the blessing of God? Do you lightly esteem his purpose for your life? What do you think about it? That's a hard question maybe for some of you to answer. Let me put it in different words. I want you to think about your own life in, say, any given month, generally. Are you generally happy? I want you to think about this. You don't have to answer. If you want to tell me later, I wouldn't be opposed to it because I'm curious. Say on a scale of 1 to 10 for your own selves. How happy are you on any given day? 10 is just the most happy you've ever been, the day God saved you, and, and 1 is you're the most miserable person in the world. How happy are you on any given day? How excited are you on any given day, typically? Are you satisfied? How satisfied on any given day, typically, are you? Are you content? How content are you on any given day? If you answer those questions to yourself honestly, you will see how well you esteem God's plan and purpose for your life. That answers it. What does it mean to be happy? I'll read you the definition. Properly, it means lucky, fortunate, receiving good from something that falls or comes unexpectedly or by an event that's not within control. Happiness is also the agreeable sensations which spring from the enjoyment of good. Let me ask you this. Is life good? Is it a blessing? How come some people can be so miserable in the same life that some other people live? Have very similar circumstances. Remember the first veteran I talked to that used a phrase like this. I said, how you doing? He said, I'm wonderful. I woke up above ground this morning. <laughs> and they'll say too, kind of lightly, jokingly, but they mean it. I'm great. Nobody's shooting at me today. Talk about perspective. Do you know how much of our present emotional state is based on our own defective perspective? And this is where I said, I hope this doesn't get into pop psychology. This is the truth of God. 
If you gave yourself typically a low score on being happy, excited, satisfied, content, you don't think much of God's plan for your life, period. I'll tell you how I scored myself, typically, not every single day. I gave myself a 9 for happy, a 9 for excited, a 4 for satisfied, and a 4 for content. I'm not a content person by nature. I'm not satisfied by nature. I'm happy and I'm excited because there's so much opportunity. Now with that, my personality makeup, this may or may not apply to some of you, there's big swings. And sometimes that nine that I usually have is almost completely gone. Maybe you don't feel that way. Maybe some of you are always a level five. Nothing excites you. Nothing really upsets you. You're just always level. I would hate being that way. Maybe it works for some people. What does it mean to be excited? Roused, awakened, animated, put in action, stimulated. Let me ask you this. What makes you get up in the morning? Some of you really don't get up in the morning possibly until you have to. Why? What would make you get up in the morning if you really wanted to? What would make you get up early and excited? Have you ever thought about that? Or those days that you do get up excited, ready to face the world, why is it? What drives you? Is there an overarching um, theme that is always present? Something that, that makes you want more? Like Jacob, he wanted more of God's blessing his whole life. And even on the way to see his uncle Laban, he met with the Spirit of God and he said, God is surely in this place. What are you saying? Is there one thing you would trade everything else to gain? Now, this is not uh, a question for you to answer in a, in a righteous way. Yes, if a man loses the whole world or gains the whole world and loses his soul, what would it profit? I'm not asking you that. I'm asking in the way that you're made up, in your emotional, mental, spiritual composition, is there one driving thing that's more important than anything else? Even in a secular carnal way, what do you care about? What if I put it this way? What's your life mission statement? Think about it for a minute. What if I said, what's your life mission statement? I want to read you the definition of content from Webster, because it's beautiful, I think. Are you content? I told you I'm not naturally content. It's not in my makeup. If I am, it's something God did. Literally, it means held in place, contained within prescribed limits. Hence, quiet, not disturbed, having a mind at peace, easily satisfied. There's no way to be happy in life without that. To be satisfied without that. And I've dug into my own psyche, my own makeup, and I've realized the reason I'm not generally satisfied is because I'm not generally content. Now that can be a good or a bad thing. It can drive you to accomplish what God wants you to, but it's a double-edged sword. 
And you can cause yourself a lot of suffering with that kind of makeup. If you are the opposite type of person, you're always level and, and maybe you are. Maybe your contentment is a much higher level and your drive and your happiness and your excitement is way lower. That's a double-edged sword too. You may miss out on blessings that God has for you. And if you're not careful, you might become like an Esau. Who you're so content, all you care about is the moment. And you'll trade the whole future God has designed for you to be satisfied right then. That's a danger. Let me ask you this, and this may not apply to most of you, but there's some it does apply to, or God wouldn't have put it in my heart. Is there one question about your life that plagues your mind? Is there a primary concern that's always present? Is there one thing you always come back to? Is there an overarching driving motivation, an ever-present concern or fear? Do you have that? Does anybody? Let me just give you some examples of what I've seen, what I've felt, what I've known in other people. A lot of people, their whole driving force for life is a fear of being alone. Some people, that drives everything they do. They're so afraid of being alone, they pile people around them all the time in the most superficial ways if they have to. Some people are so afraid of not having a real friend, they settle for bad influences who are terrible friends, who aren't even friends. Some people are so afraid of financial ruin that it motivates their entire life. Some people are so regretful over financial ruin that that's all they want to talk about is what they could have done, the money they'd lost, and what they could have had. Some people are so afraid of being insignificant. Oh, they don't phrase it that way. They phrase it like this. I want to make a difference. You ever thought that? What do you want to do with your life? I just want to make a difference. just want to help people. Why? Because you want to be needed. I'm not saying any of these are wrong, but I want you all to think about and get to what is that driving root part of you. Some people have a fear of not being needed. I'll give you an example of that. They go to your house. They can't even sit down and visit with you because they have to fix everything because they have to be needed to feel like their life matters. Some people are afraid of being forgotten. They phrase it in ways like this. I just want people to remember the good I've done. Let me tell you something if you feel that way. Everybody gets forgotten. I have no idea who my great-great-great-grandparents were. And I'm not worried about it. The old pagans used to have this idea that, that uh, the word for it was guild, And they believed, and this is kind of the warrior ethic that a lot of um, soldiers and, and marines and people still have today. They believed that what they did in life echoed in eternity. And if they could just do something heroic enough they would never be forgotten. That's why the Vikings were the way they were. But really, nobody remembers them individually. What Viking do you remember? The only one that comes to my mind is Leif Erikson, if he was a Viking. And it's not because he accomplished some great war feat, it's because he supposedly discovered this area, or America, supposedly. So even that illusion. Some people, this, this is a funny one I've run across. Some people are afraid of living too long. 
They phrase it like this. I don't want to get so old that I can't have fun anymore. I'd rather die before that happens. I had a, a, a dear sister tell me when her husband died, she sold her piano and figured she'd be dying not long after. In other words, she had no more purpose in life. Well, it's been over 15 years and she's still here. <laughs> and thinking about picking up piano again. <laughs> Do any of you identify with this one? Fear of being lost in the vanity of human existence. <laughs> That's how I phrase it. That's one of my things. You know what I say to myself? You know what? I ask y'all, what drives you? If there's one for me, my thing, the constant, always in the back of my mind fear is I don't want my life not to matter. I don't want it to be all for nothing. Now, that may be my own vanity. It may be healthy. It may be both. But that is what drives me. I don't want it to be all for nothing. And you know what I notice in my life when I start to feel completely despairing and hopeless it's because I'm focused on a present circumstance and I think that it's all been for nothing and I forget the purpose and the plan of God in my life some people their whole motivating force is a fear of being sad fear of being sad so they laugh all the time they make other people laugh Robin Williams was like that one of the greatest humor givers of our time. And he was plagued with constant sadness by his own testimony till it took his life. Some people have this motivating fear that I would call the fear of the American job model. And they say it this way, I just want to be financially free. That's another driving force I have. But if you feel that way, ask yourself why. Then what would you do? Not saying it's wrong. My point with all of those questions, that maybe they don't mean anything to some of you, but I'm telling you, they mean something to somebody. There's a reason that's in my heart. It doesn't matter what psychologists come up with. It doesn't matter if you believe in Abraham Maslow and his hierarchy of human needs. It doesn't matter what theory you subscribe to. All people... I think, are motivated by two basic forces. And there's always these two things that are opposing. It's fear and faith. Fear produces skepticism and anxiety and hopelessness and sadness. And a lot of those kind of questions I uh, posed, it produces those kind of feelings of I can't stand to be insignificant. It produces this imbalance in life where you feel like you don't matter unless you're helping somebody right then. You know what faith does? The exact opposite. Faith produces contentment. (laughs) Let me read you that definition again because I need it. I need to hear it. Being content means literally contained within limits, quiet, not disturbed, having a mind at peace. What did Paul say? Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I'm in therewith to be content. He said, I've suffered. And I've been blessed. And I've learned to be content. Why? Why would somebody who says, I've learned to be content no matter what, why can he also be so driven 
that he constantly goes around preaching to people, gets put in prison, and instead of giving up, writes all these letters that are probably the most important parts of the Bible, other than the Gospels. How can somebody who's completely content be that motivated to spread the truth? Because contentment's not apathy. And that's what we have to know. When he says, I'm content, he means I'm satisfied with God's plan for my life. I esteem highly the current circumstances that I'm in because God has a purpose in it. He's going to do something with it. And he is doing something with it, whether I see it or not. All of these things that we see, all of these measures for our happiness, all of these present gauges for whether we matter or whether we're being significant, or take this church for an example. Are we doing what we should be? Should we be doing something else completely different? Should we be doing more? Do you know we could individually and collectively ask ourselves those kind of questions until we actually drive ourselves crazy? Sometimes the very thing you're doing is what God wants. This gets into what we started with in the beginning, fear and faith. This, your perception of reality. How is it that two people can wake up in the same circumstances as I said, and one of them could be hopeful, joyful, excited, the other one can be depressed, the world's against them. How is it that we live in a country that our current uh, political climate, some people feel like God has sent us a savior and some people feel like the world's over? I first realized how important perception was when I was a freshman in college and I kept hearing my, my classmates complain to me about their bad grades because the teacher didn't like them. She just doesn't like me. And yet they didn't come to class on time, they didn't study, they couldn't write, and they didn't try. But it was the teacher who didn't like them that caused it. That's when I realized how big perception is. And this is not, again, it's not some pop psychology. This is, what do you think about God's plan for your life? His purpose. Now some of you, as I said, some of you might not believe that God really has a big plan and you just kind of go through life and, you know, the Lord saves you and you don't hear from Him much after that. You get to make your own choices, own mistakes. Someday you're going to heaven. I don't believe that. Sometimes life feels that way, but it's because of our perception. It's not real. I'm going to prove it to you. Go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 10. Listen to this told you fear is the root of all your problems. You might not realize it. Which is a lack of faith. That's what fear is. That's why we worry. I, I was talking to Sister Connie yesterday about my own makeup. Maybe some of you are this way. I worry about small things more than big things. Because the big things are so big I know I'm powerless. But the smaller things, like little, like people around me and things that I think they need for their life, that's what keeps me up at night. 
Why? Because of fear. I don't have faith that God is going to work out their lives the way he intends to. I have fear that I won't do what I need to to somehow bring that about. How foolish. Listen to this. Matthew chapter 10, verse 24 is where I'm going to start. The disciple's not above his master. The servant's not above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub or demon, devil, how much more shall they call them of his household? Fear not them, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in the light, and what you hear in the ear, that preach upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now listen to this part. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father? without his awareness. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now you listen to me if you believe God doesn't have a plan for your life, doesn't have a purpose for your life. How could God... Let's think about sparrows and hairs for a minute. Think about the the, the obstacles that Jesus faced with his disciples. You know, sparrows, if you, if you read about them, they're, they're land birds, they're not seabirds, they often make their homes on the ground. And there's many varieties, maybe over 30 varieties of sparrows. And almost all of them, their homes are on the ground. There's a couple that are in trees and one that's high up in trees. But all the rest of them are right there. And in the Greek, that means that God is aware, not just every time a sparrow dies, but every time he bounces Every time he flits and flutters, every time he flies from one branch to another, God knows and counts every single one of those times. You're going to tell me a God who has that kind of awareness and uh, the intricacies of the creation he made isn't aware of the present condition you're in, that it's not part of his plan, that you're just floating through life on a boat by yourself and God doesn't know? How about hair? Now, we think hairs on your head. You think about this stuff on top of your head. But the head is all of this. You have thousands of tiny invisible hairs all over your skin that help with sense receptors, help protect you. You have hairs in your ears if you feel them. Put your fingers in right there. Go ahead. Don't be scared. You feel those hairs. Now, when men get older, they get real long, and, and the, the barber is nice enough to trim them. I don't know why they get longer. But they're there to protect your eardrums. They're there to help you hear. They're there to help you tell when some fly or something's trying to get in. Not just hair on your head. Put your, just barely touch the edges of your hair. Do you know your hair has sensors? There's nerves. In, do you know I can, my head is... My brain, my central nervous system is telling me that there's something close to my head. How about these nose hairs? And we're all uncomfortable talking about body parts. I don't know why. God put even hair in your nose to protect your lungs, to protect your body from foreign objects that could destroy you. He put hair on your eyebrows 
They keep sweat from falling into your eyes. And he put hair right here, your eyelashes. Do If you can feel them, you can tell on your eyelash. It's amazing. If you're not amazed, just sit around sometime and play with your hair. <laughs> Look, this eyelash, it doesn't matter if you put a bunch of black goop on it or not. It tells you, it sends a signal to your brain to tell you when something's trying to get in your eye. Protects you. It gives you, in a nanosecond, your eye closes. A little particle of dust lands, boom, your eye closes. It's so fast you don't even think about it. Not to mention the hair on top of your head. The Lord says, I have every hair of your head numbered. Could you imagine, what if you sat down and you could just talk with Jesus and and he explains this and he says, you have... uh, I don't know, 2,467 hairs on top of your head and 342 in your right ear and 320 in your left ear and 3,000 on the outside of your ear and your skin and 142 in your right nose and 120 in your left nose. And you've got 37 eyelashes on your right eye. Well, you just pulled one. Now there's 36. He knows every hair. Do you realize, I mean, and we sit back and we plague ourselves with worry and fear about whether our life matters and what's the point of existence. And I mean, I'm preaching to myself. If it doesn't apply to you all, God bless you. Listen to it later when it does. You think your life doesn't matter and God knows every hair you have and He knows every time a sparrow, all the 30-something different varieties land on the ground? He doesn't know the turmoil you're in. He doesn't know the pain you're in. He doesn't know the hurt you've had. He doesn't know the struggles you can't overcome. That doesn't even make sense. You think God doesn't have a plan for your life? How does He have a plan for the hair on your head and not for your life? There's a reason Jesus over and over used these two words, fear not. There's a reason. He told his little flock. He said, fear not, little flock. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. There's a reason when he was on that boat, asleep in the middle of a life-threatening storm, and his disciples came to him and said, don't you care, we're about to die? And he says, oh, ye of little faith, why'd you doubt? You think God would have let Jesus die on that boat? They're there with the master of the wind. And then he demonstrated it. He got up and he spoke. He didn't have to jump out in the water. He didn't have to put a potion together. He didn't have to stick his staff in like Moses did. He spoke peace. And they said, what kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? You think God has control over waves and doesn't know what's happening in your life? Think he can calm a storm and he can't calm emotional storms in your life? I think about why, what made David a man after God's own heart. And I want to give you a few of his psalms, a few of the verses as, as I get ready to close. I want you to think about this too. I told you there's fear and faith. And the reason some people can live life of blessing to others and blessings to God and, and happiness and joy is because when they see an obstacle, they see opportunity. People who live lives governed by fear, when they see an optical, all they see is impending doom. Some people think that the pain of life is so much that God can't possibly care. 
I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. When do people seek God? Oh, it's gotten bad enough. We need to pray now. (laughs) I've had tons of veterans tell me there's no atheists in foxholes or in the middle of combat. Oh, they let go of their atheism and they cry out to whoever's out there. Trouble, pain. God uses that to get our attention when nothing else will. And that's an act of mercy. I, I used this verse last week. I want to remind us of it. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You know when I'm happy? When I feel like life is what it should be? It's not when I have the greatest success. It's not when I'm doing something important. It's when I'm not thinking about whether my life matters. It's when I'm not thinking about whether I'm doing what I should be doing because I'm too busy doing it. Let me read you some of David. This is why he was a man after God's own heart. Not because he was perfect, but because no matter what, all through his life, the one motivating... I asked you this question earlier. What one thing motivates you? Is there one hunger? For David, he only hungered for the presence of God. Everything else paled in comparison. That's why he was a man after God's heart. Listen. Psalm 139. Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. You know my down-sitting and my uprising. Do you think a God who knows, who counts, who keeps up with every time you sit down and every time you stand up, both figuratively and literally, doesn't know what your life is doing? You know my thoughts are far off. God keeps track of everything you've ever thought. You surround my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways, for there's not a word in my tongue, but, oh, Lord, you know it all together. God remembers everything you've ever said. He says, you've beset me behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain unto it. Where shall I go from thy spirit? Where shall I flee from thy presence? And then he goes and says, I could go all these places in the world and and there's no way because you're everywhere. Move ahead for the sake of time. 18th verse, 17th verse. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. Not only does God keep up with all of your actions and thoughts, he keeps up with everything he's ever thought about you. He says, I could not count them. They are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. God, listen to this, God is thinking about you when you go to bed at night. He's thinking about you when you wake up in the morning, and all while you're sleeping, He's thinking about you. Every one of His children, He's constantly thinking about us, how to bring us good and not harm, how to deliver us from present darkness, how to heal us, how to restore sight to the blind, spiritual sight. He's always thinking about us. And He is a person, God is a person who can think without getting tired. David said in the 91st Psalm that he's my refuge. A very present help in time of trouble, he said another place. He said, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. He said, a thousand shall fall at my side and ten thousand at my right hand, but it won't come nigh to me. Why? Because God. He said in the 90th Psalm, thou hast been our dwelling place for all generations. 
He says, when I consider the works of thy hands. You know why David was a man after God's own heart? Because he thought about what God was doing, not what he was doing. When I consider the works of your hands, God, what is man that you're mindful of him? He says, Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. Don't you think that God, who could knit you together in your mother's womb, the psalmist calls that the bowels of the earth. You formed me in the bowels of the earth. Don't you think a God who could splice together all of that DNA? Let me tell you, you may not believe this. I believe this. The old Jews believed it. That God, the Holy Spirit, is present in the conception of every human being. That He's aware, that He knows, and that He's part of it. God gives life. Period. And if you're alive, there's a reason you're alive. And I'm not talking about some big overarching, find your purpose in life, you know, this one thing. But there's a reason. God would not have put you in this earth if He didn't have a plan for your life. Period. He has the power to withhold people from being born. Jacob and uh, which one? Rachel was the one he loved. She couldn't have children for a long, long time, years, until she cried out to God enough that he listened and gave her children. One of them was Joseph, who preserved the lineage of God. One of them was Benjamin, the baby. God has power over life. There's a reason you're alive. There's a reason for everything. I want to read you one thing, and then I'm done. This is uh, Oswald Chambers. So beautiful. And this pretty much summarizes what's wrong with your life. (laughs) Are you determined to have your own way in living for God? We've all known religious people. Maybe we've been people like that sometimes. But we've all known religious people who are so holy they can't even be happy. They're so miserable because they're so good. Are you determined to have your own way in living for God? We will never be free from this trap until we're brought into the experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit of fire. Stubbornness and self-will will always stab at the heart of Jesus Christ. It may hurt no one else, but it wounds His Spirit. Whenever we are obstinate and self-willed and set on our ambitions, even if they're spiritual good ambitions, we're hurting Him. Every time we stand on our own rights and insist that, is, that this is what we intend to do, we're persecuting Him. Whenever we rely on self-respect, we systematically disturb and grieve His Spirit. And when we finally understand that it is Jesus we've been persecuting all this time, it is the most crushing revelation ever. Is the Word of God tremendously penetrating and sharp in me as I hand it on to you, or does my life betray the things I profess to teach? I may teach sanctification, yet exhibit the spirit of Satan, the very spirit that persecutes Jesus. The spirit of Jesus, listen, this is the uh, solution for peace in your life. The spirit of Jesus is conscious of only one thing, a perfect oneness with the Father. And he tells us, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. All I do should be based on a perfect oneness with him not on a self-willed determination to be godly.
all of this. This will mean that others may use me, go around me, or completely ignore me. But if I will submit to it for his sake, I will prevent Jesus Christ, his spirit, from being wounded by my actions. So let me ask you this in closing, if you know God. Do you want to be one with God or do you want to be godly? Do you want to be good or do you want to know him? Now, those don't have to be mutually exclusive, but they often are because of our pride. What do you really want? Go back to the beginning of the message, and as you think on these things, what, what really matters? Is it enough? <coughs> Is it enough for us to be like our master? <coughs>